submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give account. Let them do this joyfully and not sadly, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you, the reader. And she praised God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. to you who read 
the good tidings and to all the people. And to your spirit. I'm smiling as I come out because every Sunday that I'm going to preach, which is most Sundays, Barry always asks me, Father, do you want the pulpit? And I say every single time, Barry, thank you, I'll get it. The next Sunday, Father, do you want the pulpit? Barry, I'll get it. May we continue to do this liturgical dance for many, many more years. Just so you know, Barry, the reason I always want to bring it over here because it gives me a chance to put my thoughts together. I'm stalling. <laughs> Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I said this last Sunday and I'm going to say it again this Sunday. Usually I preach on the gospel or the epistle, uh, but I will do neither of those today. I will preach a little bit on St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas, and uh, this may sound very obvious to you, lived in the 4th century. How many of you know a Nicholas? Raise your hand. Put them down. How many of you don't know a Nicholas? Okay, very, very, very few people don't know a Nicholas. The point I'm making is that he lived 17 centuries ago. He is probably the most popular saint in all of the world. He is the patron saint of all of the Russian Orthodox world. And they didn't even come to Christianity until the 900s, 500 years after he lived. He is the patron saint of travelers. He is the prototypical model example of what a hierarch and a shepherd and a bishop should be. As a matter of fact, when we commemorate the hierarchs and the holy apostles, we remember Nicholas as the example of all of them. And so it would be very wrong of me not to focus on him today on his feast day. But not just on Nicholas, I think it's important that we understand why we as Orthodox Christians spend so much time remembering all of the saints, all of those men and women of God who were bearers of the Holy Spirit. Why do we commemorate them every single day of the year? All of them, on whatever day their feast happens to follow. I want to quote from St. Isaac the Syrian who says, By God's commandment, the teaching of the holy prophets, apostles, martyrs, the righteous, and the just have been preserved for our instruction and strengthening as the blessed Apostle Paul testifies that we might become wise and learn the ways of God and keep their histories and lives in view as living and breathing icons 
and take our example from them and run their course and make ourselves like them. This is the why behind the reason we read their lives, we honor them, we commemorate them, we study who they were and how they imitated God and how they have invited us to in turn imitate them as they imitate God. And I'm going to reread something that I read to you last Sunday because it also answers the question why. Our noose, the spiritual center of our soul, is made in such a way by God that it wants to focus on whatever we put in front of it. If we put the fallen world in front of it and we constantly expose the spiritual eye of our heart to that, that's what it will focus on. And it will attach itself to that distortion and the things of the fallen world. But if we keep in front of it the things of God, the things that are pleasing to God, then this is what it will focus on. This will feed it and transform it and cause it to want to soar towards God and towards heaven. And so Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, the fourth chapter, he says, Finally, brethren. And when you know Paul is saying, Finally, brethren, he's saying, This is important. This is how I want to end this letter to the church in Philippi. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good reputation, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, let your minds dwell on these things. How can we dwell on virtue unless we see it in the lives of human beings? Virtue is not an idea. It's not an intangible. It's not ethereal and shapeless. It has to be in the skeleton of a human life before us. And what better lives than those who have passed the test of time, who have fought the good fight, who have finished the race, and have crossed the line, whose whole entire life can be judged because it's over. The church doesn't raise up examples for us to imitate until they have passed that test. We as human beings, and I don't know all of the psychology of it, there are people out there that I'm talking to who know better than I do, but we are created as worshipful beings. Not only that, but we are created to honor things of good repute. We are made in such a way that we spend a lot of time with our parents as we are born and grow up so that they can form us and mentor us and be an example for us. This is by God's created design. And so it's natural for us to look for examples in our life, to look and seek out mentors to help us to grow up, to learn what is right, and what is beautiful, and what is excellent, and what is noble. We naturally find heroes in our life, but we don't always find 
good heroes. We don't always find heroes who have passed the test of time. And so the church says, here, here are the apostles, here are the prophets, here are the martyrs, here are the great shepherds, here are the great ascetics, here are the people who confessed their faith during their life, here are those who were miracle workers, who were great pastors, who were great almsgivers. Here are those that had a prophetic message for the world around them because they were so close to God and so filled with the Holy Spirit. You can make them your heroes. You can fixate your noose on them and look at the virtue of their lives and imitate it. So having said that, everything that I say today about St. Nicholas is meant for us, no matter what our age, to imitate, to take with us as the lesson for the day. So, St. Nicholas was raised in a small town. And as he was growing up, his biography says, and you young ones, I want you to focus on what I'm saying. He naturally leaned towards the spiritual life. Even when he was young, he naturally leaned towards things of the church reading lives of saints himself, reading the scriptures, saying his prayers. Even the ascetic life, he gravitated towards it even at a young age. So we need to cultivate and nurture when we're young the things of God and the life of the church so that it becomes deeply formed in our sense of ourself. So that this habit takes deep root and is so hard to pull up or to waver from because it's so much a part of our life. I can't tell you young people, if you learn to pray when you're young, if you learn to honor God first and foremost, if you learn to look at the world and all of it through the lens of the church and of Christ and have the mind of the Spirit then it will be much easier as you're growing older. It is extremely important, young ones, that you make the faith your own before you leave home. Do not make it an extension of your parents, but make it your own choice. Be orthodox by choice. This was what Nicholas did. He was recognized by his uncle who was the bishop in the local area. And I want you to remember that back then in the 4th century, it wasn't like it is today in the 21st century. It's not like Metropolitan Yerasimos who's over the entire west coast of the United States. He may come here once or twice a year. That's all you see him. You may never really know him personally. But that was not true in the 4th century. It was more like me and my relationship with you. That's how well the people knew their bishop because he was of their own, born and raised and pulled out and called out to be their shepherd from their midst. And so Nicholas was being mentored by his uncle who was the local bishop. He was the one who ordained him, taught him to chant, taught him to be a reader in the church, 
told him the order of the services and basically passed on to him all that he knew. And so Nicholas wanted to become a monk. He literally went to a monastery that was started by his uncle with the intent of going there and spending his life in prayer and fasting. But when he got there, he received a vision from God that says, Nicholas, this is not where I want you. Go back. Go back to your town. There you will find my will laid out for you. And so that's where his uncle ordained him to be a priest. And so he was a village priest. Nicholas was a village priest until the time when the bishop of Mira in Lycia passed away. And all of the synod of the bishops began to pray and deliberate and really discern the will of God who would be a bishop. And they could not come up with a name. In their prayers, they received a vision. One of the holiest of them received a vision that said, The first priest who comes into the church to say his prayers, he will be the bishop of Mira and Lycia. Who was the first priest to come in? It was Nicholas. Did he seek this office? Was he even thinking about it? The answer is no. So another thing that we need to take home with us is that we need to seek God's will, but not worldly ambition. We don't want to seek offices and positions and status and reputation and honor from men because it will displace the honor that comes from God. So Nicholas was chosen in that way. And he became the Archbishop of Mira and Lycia in Cappadocia. But he wasn't over a whole huge area. He was from the midst of his people. And they loved him dearly. Nicholas became someone who, when his parents died, took all of their inheritance. And he started to distribute it to the people who had need. It came to him freely, and freely he gave it away. He was known for his generosity. This is where we get St. Nick and all of the gift giving because he was so known for giving away everything that he had to those in need. He was so sensitive to the people, whether it be a physical need, a material need, a spiritual need, an emotional need. Nicholas was there for him, for them, emptying himself. So when he gave all of that away, then all the money that came to him because people knew that he was a merciful man and an almsgiver, he would give that away. This is why he is known for saving the family that had the three daughters who did not have dowries. Throwing in the stocking gold coins through the window anonymously. If they hadn't seen him, no one would have ever known it. He never did anything so that he would be recognized. As a matter of fact, Christmas stockings come from that tradition of giving away things anonymously in stockings because of what St. Nicholas did. St. Nicholas not only knew things near, but he also knew things from afar. There were three men, and hymnology even talks about it in last night's Vespers and in this morning's Orthros, that were wrongly accused of a crime that they were going to be severely punished for, if not executed, by King Constantine the Emperor, who really didn't know that they were not guilty. But he was going to, as king, deliver the verdict. 
And just as about they were about to be executed, literally the hymnology says that the sword was in the air, Constantine received a vision from Nicholas that these three men were innocent and the execution was stayed and these three men were found to be innocent when, they were re- when there was more research done about the evidence. But this was all from afar by the prayers of St. Nicholas because he was so sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He went to the first ecumenical council as the other 325 bishops, uh, 318 bishops did, and he was so zealous for the truth that as Arius was mouthing off heresy and being disrespectful to those who knew better, in his zeal and his love for God, he literally struck Arius in the face during the proceedings of the council in front of everybody, knowing that it was against the canons for a clergyman to strike another person. He was so filled with the Holy Spirit and he was in this state that this is, this is prophetically what he did. And he was put in ecclesiastical jail, stripped of all of his rank, and he was going to be defrocked. But three different bishops that night were visited by the Panagia and some other saints and they were shown that he should receive the gospel book and his omophorion, the unique vestment of a bishop, back. And so when they woke, they restored him to his rank as Archbishop of Mira and Lycia. And they were amazed that this would be the prophetic utterance of the Holy Spirit through this beautiful man. My dear brothers and sisters, there was a time when he wanted to go to a pilgrimage in Jerusalem and the only way to get there was by sea and the ship was in great danger in a storm and he literally calmed the storm and saved the ship. This is one of the reasons why he became the patron saint of those who travel because most people who traveled in dangerous conditions back then traveled by sea. And so today... If there's an Orthodox ship, or there's an Orthodox captain, or a co-captain on a boat, you will always, and I mean always, find an icon of St. Nicholas in the, uh, what would you call it, the control center of the ship. Always. I remember one day, one time here at, at the port of Portland, there was a ship from Greece and they asked me to come and do a blessing. They took me up to the helm of the ship and there right in front and center was an icon of St. Nicholas. Of course, I knew it would be there, but it's always reassuring. My dear brothers and sisters, whether it be a person of prayer and humility and simplicity, a person of great mercy and generosity, a person uh, who is zealous for the truth and for the faith, a person who is a true shepherd and a lover of the people, who really enters into their life and their pain and their joys. This is St. Nicholas. The last thing that I want to close with is the Doxastikon from this morning's Orthros. It was that long, beautiful hymn that Presbyteros sang just before the doxology.
And I'm only going to read a part of it. But listen very carefully. O shepherds and teachers, let us come together and praise the shepherd and zealous imitator of the Good Shepherd. Those of us who are sick, let us praise the physician. Our rescuer, we are in perils. Sinners, he is our defender. You who are poor, let us praise him who makes you rich. If you are in tribulation, know that he is your consolation. Your fellow traveler, you who travel. He is your pilot, you who sail the seas. And everyone extol him who anticipates everywhere as the grandest hierarch. And in praising him, let us say to him, All Holy Father Nicholas, quickly come and deliver us from the present necessity and save your flock by your intercessions. Amen.